to episode 134 of the Cricket Hair Weekly. Now, WBBL has started, Sid, and we have been able to watch some of the matches um, from England, and it's been quite exciting. What stood out for you so far? Uh, yeah, we've, we've watched a couple of complete matches and a couple of matches we've seen highlights of, um, and it's always great to see the to see the fact that Australia puts so much effort into kind of you know scheduling the matches um, in, a, in a way that allows them all to be broadcast um, and you know you can take your choice of the match they've all got proper commentary they've all got proper cameras um, for those that don't follow the, the way that it works in England we've still got a lot of games in our regional competition where they're, they're only they're almost all live stream but they're often live stream with fixed cameras okay. and having you know the, the kind of full professional broadcast setup uh, is brilliant and we've also got the DRS um, which we've seen employed a couple mm-hmm. of times not entirely successfully um, I thought but... it was can I just say I thought that it was very considerate of Cricket Australia to schedule the first game for so that it starts at 9.30am UK time uh, more of that please yeah that's, that's, that's <laughs> always, a, always a good thing uh, yeah no and I've, I've enjoyed, the highlight for me has been seeing the, the Melbourne Stars actually I mean I'm you know as a Hurricanes fan, I'm perhaps not allowed to say this, but you know it's great to see the three England batters uh, coming in at the top of the order. So we've got Lauren Winfield, Hill, Bess Heath, uh, and Alice Capsey um, opening the batting there. And Lauren Winfield Hill had a brilliant innings. Just like I mean, all the all the Australians are obviously looking at, oh, this is a surprise. Um, because obviously when she's, she, it's, like, it's almost a different Lauren Winfield yeah. here, isn't it? Um, and, but she's basically brought the same form to you know Australia's season as she's had in the season here. And she made a big score in the first match. Um, Bess Heath um, took a little bit of time to get into it in the first match. She made like 25 runs off 30 balls or something. Um, it wasn't it wasn't a terrible contribution. Obviously, it was it was the kind of contribution where you're going, you need to need to do better than that at this level. But she did come in today and did better than that. She's hit over over 100 today. She scored like 35 or something. At a strike so, rate of, at a strike rate of over 100. Over 100. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> to clarify, hit at over 100. Yeah. Uh, so that was great. Um, Alice Capsie didn't make runs today, but she made a few yesterday. But she, again, she did very Alice Capsie innings. She was straight into it, straight into her running. Um, there were the commentators, of course, also going, you know, who is this Alice Capsey person? Um, you know, Raf shakes her head. Um, but, you know, they're going to find out all about her by the end of the season, I suspect. Yeah, um, So it's been great. And it's particular, but one thing I really liked was the fact that Bess Heath was given a decent opportunity by the Stars. Um, I've had a better opportunity than she was given by the um, the Superchargers in, in the 100. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she's coming in at two. Um, you know, she's possibly only going to be there for the first couple of games. She's got been someone called else. in yeah, as an injury replacement, Someone else is coming in, she? aren't they? I can't remember who. Okay. Sorry. That's all uh, right. Apologies. We're, we're just Bess Heath um, fans. But, you know, <laughs> give give these players these opportunities yeah. and they'll come through. It's the same as Freya Kemp in the England shirt. You know, give them enough opportunities and, you know, they'll, they'll shine. And I really believe in these players. And so, you know, I hope that she makes the most of her opportunity, even if it is brief. And, you know, give the selectors something to worry about there. Great. So, okay. Awesome. Now, there has been some talk about WBBL, which obviously for quite a long time has kind of been the unrivaled leader in the uh, global landscape of women's franchise tournaments, let's be honest. Um, but suddenly, Definitely. this time around, I think partly because of the success of the 100, partly because it's coming on the back of an announcement that we are going to get a kind of proper women's IPL, um, whereby you actually have genuine number of teams playing a number of matches. It's not just the kind of challenge that we've had so far. We've also got um, the prospect of a, um, a Pakistan women's league um, and we've had a Caribbean women's premier league, etc, um, etc. Et so suddenly there is 
there's starting to be a little sense in which the WBBL might be under threat. Um, and actually, Brittany Carter and Kristen Beams um, on their new WBBL podcast um, tackled this subject. Um, and they were actually saying, does the WBBL have anything to worry about from these other tournaments? So what do you make of that, Sid? Well, does it? Yeah, I mean, it does It does and it doesn't. I think that, the, yeah, as we've said, that the WBBL remains the kind of preeminent domestic tournament. Um, and the, the, the domestic game, because it's so strong in Australia, that it feels like they're a little bit less reliant on the huge overseas stars. You feel that the up-and-coming women's IPL, there's been a little bit of disappointment about it because the, the rumour is it's going to be five teams, not the same number of teams as in the uh, men's IPL, the, the MIPL, as we should be calling it from, from now on. Um, really? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but there's been a little bit of disappointment, but actually it's going to wind up being the same number of games as there, as there were in the 100 this year, I believe, because of the one less game in the 100. Okay. Um, so it's, it's very certainly a very similar number of games um so you know it, it's definitely as you say it's a huge difference between playing like you know 25 games in a season and playing the sort of four games that were being played in the the exhibition kind of challenge tournament mm. um so i think that there's going to be a big emphasis on overseas players here i okay. think that's what's going to sell it and that's, that they're going to be looking for that to, to sell it around the world as well and you know that'll be a positive from them selling the tv rights and things like that um, but i think that australia's domestic strength are such that you know it's still going to be like the preeminent competition. There's been some interesting talk over the last couple of weeks as well. It's like some players have been suggesting they should shorten the WBBL yeah. because it's too long and they're worried about its space in the calendar. I, I feel really uncomfortable about this. I think that the reason it's so good is because it's a proper long tournament. It gives you actually time to get into it. It's kind of like a build form to build run. It also gives you a time to come back. You know, like the, the, from the very first season when Sydney Sixers, you know, started off so disastrously and then they had their Sixers are going vertical hashtag um, and the hashtag was definitely the entire reason that they <laughs> leapt up the table and ended up winning the, winning yeah. the thing in the first season, I believe. Um, so a long tournament, whereas it gives you the ability for, for teams to kind of get into it and to come back from a bad start. Whereas in the 100, it really felt this year, like if you if you lost your first two or three games and you, you were stuffed and you might as well, you know, get on the plane and fly home. And, you know, feel some people almost literally did that. But it is a balancing act, isn't it? Because obviously, the um, the from a player perspective, if you can get paid the same amount as you'd get in the WBBL for playing in a shorter competition, then it's a little bit of a no-brainer, isn't it? Because you are going to, therefore, you know, and everyone's talking now about because the women's game is more professional and there's a tighter schedule or, or a more crowded schedule, um, players are tired. And so really, how long is the prestige of the WBBL going to outweigh shorter competing tournaments? So I think it's, a, it's definitely a balancing act, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But on the other hand, the other side of that coin is that a shorter tournament is going to mean less interest. It's going to mean less viewers. It's going to mean, you know, possibly less TV coverage. I mean, you could obviously, because they've only got, you know, a certain number of games broadcast on on proper TV in the WBBL, then they can still, they could have half the length of the tournament and still give the Fox the games they've signed up to. But it's not really what you want to do. How happy are Fox going to be if you go, well, it's going to be half the tournament now? You know, they, they kind of build that into their schedules and things. So I think that will be a real mistake to kind of reduce that. And that's one of the reasons that players want to go over there and play in it, I think, that ultimately, actually, playing in a lot of short tournaments, we've talked about this around fair break, 
the playing in a lot of short tournaments is actually psychologically really difficult because you know you're like here for three weeks, and then you're here for three weeks, and you're here for three weeks, and that's really tough on you to kind of moving around the, the world like that. Whereas a longer tournament gives you actually time to settle in somewhere and feel part of it, and I think that that's important, actually, particularly for those kind of jet-setting players, the your, your Lizelle Lees and Deandra Dottins that are going around the world to have a little bit of a longer tournament. So I, I hope that Australia keep the faith and keep it as a longer tournament because I think that's one of the things that ensures it remains the kind of the, the, the blue ribbon tournament in terms of all these domestic franchises because there's certainly no doubt you know that the 100 was a great tournament this year I don't think I, I don't think I agree with you to be honest I don't okay. I think that Cricket Australia are going to come under enormous pressure to reduce the length um, and I don't know that they can necessarily just sit on their laurels and go okay well we're the best tournament and we can rely on people coming and playing here um, and I think that to a certain extent, there's an argument that actually we shouldn't be setting up the um, the calendar around players like Liz Lee and Deandra Jotton because aren't we then encouraging people to quit international cricket and to then go off and just go, OK, well, I can just play in all of these short form tournaments and that's fine. And that's what we're obviously seeing in men's cricket. Do we want to then be encouraging that to happen in women's cricket? I guess that it's, it's perhaps inevitable in some ways that it's going to go that way, but I don't know that we should be encouraging it. Um, so I, I don't know if we should be setting up the schedule around those kind of players. I, from my perspective, actually, it's potentially quite exciting that you're going to have you're going to have opportunities for more players because if some of your big your big shot players are going to say, okay, well, I'm going to play in the um, in the women's IPL instead of playing in the WBBL or instead of playing in the hundred, then that opens up opportunities for other players. And actually, what we saw with the first year of the hundred, which was during COVID, which meant that some of the big shot Australian players like Alyssa Healy, like Meg Lanning, like Elise Perry, didn't come to England um, because. Covid, I guess, um, and they didn't need the money. Let's be frank, um, and so therefore there wasn't that incentive for them to come. And so we did see players like Sammy Joe Johnson having a great time for the Trent Rockets, and 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 you know really actually to some extent the crowds didn't care that it was Sammy Joe Johnson, not like Alyssa Healy, because they a lot of them did hadn't watched very much women's cricket before. Um, and then actually to some extent, then what we saw in the second season was okay. Well, some of those slots are now being filled by your players who are then going to go and dominate every women's franchise and so you don't you didn't get that same kind of spreading out of the love spreading out of some of the the financial um kind of resources rewards, rewards yeah so i think this could be quite exciting from a player perspective um and i also think that potentially what it does is um it creates more of a market for players and it means that actually the boards who by and large are organising these tournaments with the exception of fair break, it's the boards who are organising the tournaments, who are bankrolling the tournaments, it puts pressure on them to up the players' salaries. And that's really exciting because, um, you know, to, to some extent, what we want is the women to be paid the same as the men or to, to be paid more anyway. And so actually, if what Cricket Australia need to do is to up the salaries in WBBL or, or the ECB need to, up, you know, really put some welly into making matching the men's salaries in the 100, which are preposterously bigger than the women's salaries in order to attract um, those best players, then that's brilliant for women's cricket, actually. Um, yeah, because you can be sure that that's what the women's IPL was going to do. The yeah. women's T20 challenge has always been, in terms of the number of games you play for the, for the amount of money you get, it's always been by far the best played 
the best paid tournament that, that there is available for these players. And if they keep those kinds of salaries, then actually, you know, even your Meg Lannings are going to be going, well, that's that's going to double my income for yeah. the year if I if I have that. So that's that's kind of interesting as well, yeah. yeah. Okay. So we did also put out a call for your questions on Facebook and Twitter. Um, and so we will now spend the rest of the episode answering a couple of those. Um, so the first one that came in, the Asia Cup has been great. Um, India, of course, this week were triumphant in the Asia Cup um, against Sri Lanka in the final. So the Asia Cup has been great, but dominated by bowlers. Why are the Asian teams so good at producing bowlers, but, except India, less so batters, compared to the rest of the top nations. I'm going to let you take that one, Sid. It is a really interesting question, isn't it? Because there's absolutely no doubt that, that all of these, these Asian teams, when we look at them, when they come into the major tournaments, so um, you know, we look at like the, the Sri Lankas and they're very dependent upon one or two batters. Um, and Thailand came in, when they came in and played in the T20 World Cup, you know, it was their bowling that was their real strength. And it was obvious that they weren't going to make a huge amount of runs with the bat, but they could challenge teams by out bowling them, uh, you know, and they they did in a couple of instances really put pressure on some of those bigger teams by doing that. So why is that? Well, I mean, I mean the bottom line is that we don't really know. It could, of course, just be a coincidence, mm -hmm. right? It could be one of those things which just like looks like a pattern, but it's just like the normal, you know, vagaries of these things. Sometimes bowlers are on the up, and sometimes the, you know, the batters are on the up. But I think there are some aspects to it. There's certainly, um, you know, it's there's a little bit of, you know, you can only be what you can see, which means that that if you've got strength in spin bowling, then younger people coming through their age group systems are going to see other spin bowlers, and they're going to be coached in that spin bowling, for instance. Yeah. So because it, it is spin bowling in particular, not even just pace bowling, but spin bowling. So you know, if you're a, you know a 13, 14 year old girl and you're playing cricket for the first time and the, the, the best player in your club is also a spin bowler you're going to look up to her and go well you know you're going to ask her the questions yeah. and she's going to come to you and coach yeah. you on how to do that so that kind of you know pushes in that direction mm -hmm. i think it's also interesting to compare it because they're, they're, in other parts of the world there was something else going on because what we've seen in the the african sides you know again if we if we exclude south africa where cricket is so much of a bigger game but the emerging african sides we've seen huge dominance of batting so much so that we've seen like uh, batting records smashed in in competitions between the African sides because their batting is really good but their bowling is poor so you know that that's happened in this in a similar vein so you know just different different things just grow up in in these okay. you know different nations and what we, what we want to do obviously is to try and ideally what we want to be doing is to ensure that these kind of sides are meeting each other rather than just meeting within their own mm. communities, if you like. So want to be ideally seeing the, the African sides be able to take on the Asian sides rather than African sides always playing African sides, Asian sides always playing Asian sides among the minor nations mm -hmm. because that will help kind of spread those skills and they'll see those other skills and, um, you know, it will hopefully kind of start to reconfigure the game more globally. So I think that could be something that the ICC should kind of look at being able allowing those sides to find competition against uh, across continents rather than always within the continents. Okay. I mean, obviously that's being done at the moment because it's cheaper. So you need to find to money yeah. from somewhere. But it always comes point. down to money, doesn't yeah, it? sadly. Okay, another question. How do we incentivise cricket boards to properly invest in women's cricket in their countries so that the women's game can be professional in enough countries for a fully vibrant women's game? Well, it's what we want, isn't it, Raph? What's the answer? <laughs> well, I think um, 
A couple of points I would make on this. Um, the first is that when I read this question, I immediately thought of the kind of competitive rivalry between England and Australia that I think has really encouraged greater investment in women's cricket by both those countries. So, for example, one of the main reasons that England introduced the first fully professional contract for any women's team in the world in 2014 was because they were trying to keep up with the pace of Australia, who the previous year had invested even more money and so their women's team were better paid, if not yet fully professional. Australia then subsequently made their national team fully professional. They introduced the WBBL, so the ECB introduced the Kia Super League and then subsequently the 100 and etc, etc, etc. We're now making our domestic system professional because Australia's domestic system is professional. And that ashes, historic Ashes rivalry, which exists in women's cricket just as much as it has in men's cricket, has really driven that increased investment. Um, and I think to a certain extent, you know, you've seen it with some of the other historic rivalries that there's been in the men's game. I think India versus Pakistan, for example, there's, there was to some extent a little bit of a battle between India and Pakistan, the boards there, um, to invest more in their women's cricket team. I guess India is now pulling away in that respect. Um, so that's, you know, that's perhaps fallen by the wayside slightly, but there is still that huge competitive urgency when those two teams play each other. So I think one of the things I would say is that teams need to kind of find their nemesis, find their nearest rival and try and kind of harness that in the, um, you know, in harness that in order to get this increased investment from the boards, perhaps. Yeah, it's certainly something that fans pay a huge amount of attention to. We, we can see it already in the way that the ECB are hyping up the ashes for, for next summer that, you know, we've, we've seen the schedule announced already. It was almost unheard of that we mm. had a schedule announced, you know, like nine months in advance or something. Yeah. And it feels like only yesterday the schedule would, would be announced perhaps a week in advance. They'd tell us when they were going to be, when when exactly where the next internationals were going to be. Yeah, so the ashes is also so, a really big deal. Yeah, kind of, yeah. So, you know, be Batman, find your Joker. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Um, so that's one thing I'd say. I think the second thing is that... Um, it's it's partly on on all of us um, as people who support women's cricket to try and put pressure on the boards, and I would hope that that's what you and I have done to some extent, Sid. Um, particularly, obviously, in the English context. Um, in a way, what we're trying to do, and one of the reasons why some people at the ECB don't like us very much, is we're trying to shame them into investing more in women's cricket. And I think people don't like it when you make them feel ashamed. But shame is a very potent force in terms of getting that increased investment. So, for example, a few years ago when um, you wrote that piece on Cricket Her, that they were running a, a Pledge for Parity International Women's Day campaign on the same day that the England women's team flew in economy class while the England men's team flew in business class to the same tournament in the same country. Um, and that shamed them and they did something about it and now the women fly business class to international tournaments now not necessarily saying that we were directly responsible for that but we certainly I, th I think shame had a real role to play there um, and I, I, yeah so that's kind of yeah, what we're, we're trying to do isn't it everyone needs to make their voices heard basically because you can bet that people in the men's game are making their voices heard so for instance in England there's, there's a lot of competition for money at the moment you know, and the women's game is competing for money effectively for, with, the, with the men's domestic game for example because yeah. the men's 
men's domestic game can't support itself any more than the women's domestic game can, unfortunately. They're, they're all dependent upon, essentially, men's test cricket to fund them in the way that it works in this country. Um, and you can bet that everyone from the men's game, from the men's domestic game, are putting huge pressure on the ECB to, mm. to, to kind of up their budgets and to, you know, to give them more money, to give them a bigger slice of the cake. So the women need to be doing that as well. And you know, part of our role and part of your role as fans is to, you know, to kind of ensure that those voices are heard. Yeah. So make your voices heard. Another example would be um, when Izzy Westbury wrote that, um, you know, that had that scoop in the Telegraph about the fact that the Indian team hadn't been paid their prize money for the T20 World Cup for coming runners-up in that in 2020 and I think it was like what over a year later they still hadn't been paid so she published that story and there was an enormous outcry on social media about it so lots of Indian fans tweeting saying this is unacceptable what are you going to do about it BCCI funnily enough within a couple of weeks that prize money had reached the bank accounts of the players now obviously complete coincidence Sid nothing to do with that but you know so it's that so I think journalists to some extent we have um we have powerful outlets for our voices, but I think Twitter and other social media, you have power as well. Everyone has power. They have that voice that, that did they didn't have kind of 10 years ago. So that's, that's what I would say. Yeah. Great. Okay. Well, if you do have any more questions and you would like to see them answered in future episodes, we are very happy to answer them and we will do our best to do so. So do send them in. Um, as ever, thank you for tuning in. Bye for now. Bye. <laughs>